All right, so we're in part three of Timeless, a series that we started a couple weeks ago. And uh, the, the idea behind this series is that we live in a very trendy world. There's cultural trends, there's uh, technology trends, uh, there's housing trends, there's, uh, there's music trends. So I thought to get started today, because we're going to go and cover just a lot of Bible. The Bible's more fun if you play a game. So music trends. I'm going to show you a picture of a band or a musician from a particular era of time. Let's see if you know who they are. Some of you will know those in the beginning, and some of you will know those in the end, and maybe some of you will know all of them. So, back to the 1950s, does anybody know who this is? Buddy Holly, very good. Love some of his stuff. All right, 1960s, anybody? Hey, that's right, okay. 1970s, does anybody remember the 70s? She doesn't. Janis Joplin, yeah, all right. Okay, so how about this one? Everybody ought to get this one, the 80s. Michael Jackson, that's right. Uh, 90s, here we go. Anybody? Nirvana. Yay, you're a sinner too. So, all right. Um, How about the, we'll we'll go the other side of the aisle. 2000s? Garth Brooks, yeah. The country music? Anyway, um, yeah. Who is that? Uh, 2010s. Anyone? Katie? Too many of you knew who that was. Too many. And then, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, as, as much as there are musical trends through the eras, there are some bands that are just timeless. You too. That's right. That's right. See, if you don't know who that is, that's okay. You weren't born in the 80s. That's good. Um, so anyway, some of the best things in the, in the world are not those things that are trendy, but those things that are timeless. And so if you hear anything today that you think was just valuable, you want to go back and review, because we're going to cover a lot of things real quickly. You can go here to uh, the website or to iTunes, and you can uh, catch up. And what we're doing, if you'll notice, <clears throat> our sermons this time around in, in this series are not really sermons as much as they are just straight teaching. And so I am including for you way more scriptures than what we normally cover. Normally, we'll we'll do a whole series on a single topic, and we'll drill down each week until there's nothing more to say about it, and we'll maybe cover a single passage on a given Sunday. Today, I'm going to give you a great eight-week series in the next 40 minutes, so it's going to be awesome. And because of that, I have included in the bulletin for you an full outline of all of the passages that we're going to cover. There are not, that's not a complete list of passages on these particular topics, but past today, we're also going to post these sermon uh, slides that we use in, uh, up on the wall, and we're going to do the inserts up on the website, so if you want to go and download those, or just take notes today, uh, that'll be fine. So, here we go. If, if you missed where we started, we, in week one, covered the entire Bible just to give us a framework in, on which we can begin to hang some of these things that we're beginning to, to learn. And uh, the reason I'm trying to pack so much in is, folks, we're running out of weeks, and I need to download what I can so that you guys have stuff to really uh, help you in your continued studies as a church. So what we said in week one is that we just gave an overview of the Bible, that the Bible begins with God living on earth with man. When things were just as he wanted them to be, when it was perfect, he looked, stepped back and said, it is good, it is very good. That was the situation, and then we messed it up with sin, and because of that, God, who is pure and holy and just, can't be in the presence of sin, he bailed and left and began in that moment to... put in place a plan of reconciliation to once again bridge that gap that we created. And you're thinking, well, I didn't create it. Well, folks, you're part of the human race, so it is on us. So 
as part of that plan, even before you get out of the book of Genesis, he made a covenant with a man named Abraham, a series of promises that included that there would be a, a, he would become the father of an entire nation, which today we know as Israel, and that out of that line of people, the entire world would be blessed, and we know that happened through Jesus, and he promised a territory that would be in their possession forever. But what's interesting is the story goes on, more than just physical Israel is included in that, you are considered heirs according to the promises to Abraham. So there needed to be a ruler in that, so then when King David's on the throne, David gets a promise from God that said, David, there will be a descendant from your line that will sit on the throne that you now preside over, that throne or that kingdom will be established forever. Well, we know now that that kingdom ended in about 70 AD when the Romans threw them out, and there was no kingdom of Israel until 1948 when the United Nations, post-Hitler era, put in place a homeland for the Jews. But the homeland, as it is constituted now, does not cover even a portion of the area of land that was promised to Abraham and you. So that is yet to come. And that person, that descendant, that human that would sit on that throne was called the Messiah through all of Hebrew scriptures. In fact, and we'll get to this in a little bit, is actually referred to as the anointed one. That the ruler that God was going to pick to sit on the throne of David forever to rule the world was his anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. Then along comes the New Testament written in Greek, and the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah is Christ, which is why we use the term Jesus Christ. It was not his name like, you know, Bill the Cat. It was, it was just, that was his, okay, so anyway, I got kids in elementary. Then we get to Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophecies. He was a man who was in the line of Abraham and the line of David. He was the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he said that his reason for showing up was to proclaim something called the kingdom of God. And we'll get to that a little bit later today. And then we move past Jesus after the crucifixion. We have the book of Acts, and that's when the church was launched and the disciples went out around the Mediterranean teaching and preaching what Jesus taught and proclaiming his name. And a guy shows up named Paul, and we know that he wrote many of the books in the New Testament. And then as all of them proclaimed, these prophecies would eventually come to fruition in Revelation when God ends up, the end of the book, The Bible ends with God living on earth with man. So it begins with God living on earth with man. It ends with God living on earth with man. And everything else is in between. So last week, we talked about God and some of the things that are true about him. And we used the phrase essential characteristics. There are some things that are so intrinsic to his nature that without those things, he ceases to be God. He can't be God without some of those things. Omnipotence, omniscience, omniscience. immortality, those things. Now, immortality can be something that is granted as we will achieve at the resurrection, but that is intrinsic and essential to his nature, that he was immortal and not given immortality. It is who he is. So anyway, so today I want to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the hinge point of the Christian faith. 
and nobody has been more um, debated through the ages than Jesus. The topic of who Jesus is and how he is related to God has been more contentious than any political campaign we've ever seen. People have been killed over this issue. They have argued over this issue. They've made denominations over this issue. There have been issues after issues. So today, as I talk through these things, I need to say up front, we don't know everything about Jesus, but we do know some things about Jesus. So I'm not going to go through the things we don't know and can't know but talk about some of the things that Scripture teaches clearly. And as a general rule of thumb, as you're reading through Scripture, has anyone ever run into anything that they don't understand? Okay. Let me pause just a second. Are we good? Okay. And that's okay. If we can get some help there, we'll just go ahead and help her. And this is not to incite any panic, but there's no reason for me to keep preaching and pretend nothing's happening when something's happening, right? That's right. Yeah, Russ, do you want to stand up and just have a prayer uh, for Janet as we're going ahead and uh, giving her some some attention? All right. Thank you guys for uh, helping attend to Janet. So we will get news to you when we hear news. And, uh, you know, you can be praying for her health here. And as best we can, we will reconvene and uh, pick back up where we left off momentarily. So, all right. All right. When, uh, when we are addressing and exploring the issue of who Jesus is or any topic in Scripture, the general rule of thumb is you begin with portions of Scripture that are more clear and use those to inform the portions of Scripture that are less clear. Because I think we would all recognize and all admit to the fact that there are portions of Scripture that are a little less um, clear, they're more confusing than other passages. So rather than take a confusing passage and say, what do I think this means? Come up with an idea and then later find a scripture that says something else and have it shoehorn in. Just start with what's clear. So that's what we'll do our best at at uncovering today. So let's plow through. Are you ready? And I'm excited I'm here today. This is going to be good. So number one, who is Jesus? That's that's just the topic, you know, we have to, to really wrestle with because that's the fundamental question that we all have to answer for ourselves. Do we believe Jesus is who he says he is? Well, first and foremost, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? There's an interesting passage when the angel shows up to Mary, and I didn't put this up here, but she, the angel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary to say, you're going to be pregnant. The Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and therefore, or for this reason, he will be called the Son of God. He was not the Son of God prior to that, but because the Holy Spirit was the initial, uh, I don't, the the origination of Jesus, that's what the angel said was the reason he would be called that. So in John 17, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. So Jesus is praying, and these are his words, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So Jesus' own words is recognized that God is his Father, and he is in some way the Son of God. For you granted him authority, speaking of himself in third person over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him, 
And then he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that Jesus is saying in his prayer, dear God, please help people know who you are and help them know who I am. You're my father, I'm your son, and he goes on from there. Jesus wasn't alone in that. When you get into the book of Acts and they're out preaching to people who have no concept of who Jesus is, they said this in Acts 19, Saul, who was out planting churches, spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So from Paul's perspective, as he goes into a territory that has no background in the Jewish religion, that has no understanding of Old Testament prophecies, his first order of business is to begin preaching and convincing people that Jesus is the Son of God, that there is a connection in some way, that he's just not Joe the plumber, he's not some dude from the YMCA, but that he is uniquely uh, situated in all of history as God's own son. In fact, we find later in John 3.16, which we'll look at, he's the only begotten son of the Father. And begotten is a key phrase there because all of us are called sons and daughters of God, but that is different than begotten. And the reason he's begotten is because the Holy Spirit is the point of origination. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing a letter to another church that he established, and he says in his opening salutation, where he's like, hey guys, this is Paul, I'm a minister of Jesus, and you know, this is who I am. He says, and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, right, point blank, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There is a unique and divine relationship there. But then Jesus himself, in the book of John, and John is a fascinating book, because John is wholly written to help convince people who are not Jewish that Jesus was God's Son. And notice what Jesus is quoted as saying in the book of John, in John 20. Oh, Jesus, and this is not a quote of Jesus. John is writing, but these are written. Like everything that I've written so far, these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To come to an understanding that Jesus is differentiated from every other person who's ever lived on this planet. That he has a unique uh, uh, quality of relationship with God, who is the Father, that nobody else in the history of mankind has had or ever will have again. And he connects being the Messiah, that anointed one, with being the Son of God. So that brings us to point number two, that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he's the Messiah. Also in John, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman, and she's a little bit confused, and Jesus is speaking into her life, and she says this, the woman says, well, I know that the Messiah, and then John inserts this little parenthesis called Christ, so we know that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Like I said, it's not his last name. It's Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. Like I've read all the Old Testament prophecies. I understand what my rabbi taught us growing up. I know that the Messiah will come, and here's where she stood on it. She's like, I don't understand a whole lot of stuff, but I know that the Messiah will come, and when he comes... He'll explain everything to us. Have you ever felt like that? Like, there's a lot in here I don't know, but when Jesus shows up, I hope he explains it. And that's what she says. He'll explain. And then Jesus declared, hey, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. Like, I am the Messiah, the one that you're looking for, the one that the Jewish people have longed for, the one that has been prophesied. That's me. And later in Acts, The same thing, Peter stands up, and we're going to read this passage in its entirety at the end today, but 
Peter says to all of these people gathered in Jerusalem, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter stands up and says, It has been God's decision. It is his decree. He made Jesus the Messiah. You guys have been looking for this anointed one down through the ages. God has chosen to make Jesus the Messiah, his son. So buck up, kiddos. You better get on board. So Jesus is the son of God, and he's the Messiah. Point number three, Jesus is the Savior. Now, I know we've heard that all our lives. Well, Jesus, Savior of the world, right? Every Christmas pageant you go to, he's the Savior of the world. But it is important to me to cover some of the basics in such a way that you understand that these things come from the Scriptures and not just a preacher, not just a priest, not just a a faith statement, but all of these things that we say about Jesus that you may have heard growing up all come from the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 13, um, in in another sermon, they're talking about the Old Testament coming up to Jesus, and they're talking about God in the Old Testament. After removing Saul, Saul was the first king of united Israel. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And then God testified concerning him that I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. So back in the Old Testament... God understood that David had a heart after him, and he'd do everything. And then, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's why when the Jews were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for somebody to save them, to to, to bring back the, the might, the power, the glory of the kingdom of Israel, that he would be their Savior. But not only is he a Savior... This is where it really begins to hit the road for you and me. That Jesus is, by Scripture, referred to as a mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is someone that goes between two different parties in order to uh, come to some agreement, to effectually uh, negotiate a contract, to to bridge a gap, right? um, In baseball, you, you have to go to mediation sometimes to create a contract between players and management. This is what Paul says. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind. So on one hand of the one side of the equation, you have God, the Father in heaven, who is perfect and just and holy and without sin. On the other hand, on the other side of the equation, you've got a bunch of us. And we're just messed up with sin. We fight with jealousy and gossip, and we don't agree, and we can't vote for people without fighting about it, and we don't like, you know, our brother's getting something we don't get, and our sister, and they got a better TV, and we don't like how they, and we're just messed up. And somehow, it is our goal to not be as messed up as we are. And the only way we can be not messed up to be more like God is if there is someone who stands in the gap. And Paul says there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, I know, this, this is where I have to just step aside and say, this is theology. And some of you right now are sort of like, oh. Right? But, but here's why some of this matters. And, and I'm not here, it's not picking a fight, but, but here's why theology 
matters because it impacts how we view the world, how we view ourselves in relationship to God. Let me just do a for example, and this is not uh, a, a critical statement, but just to show how different views of theology matter. Uh, how many of you grew up in, in, in a Catholic persuasion? Okay, so a, a Catholic understanding of Jesus is less about his humanity and more about the fact that he's, you know, he, he's actually God. He was just like pretending to be a man for a time, but he's really God. So what that means is the reason he was sinless is because he wasn't a man. He was well, kind of a man, partially man, but he was God in a bod, right? So if he was God in a bod, the problem with that is, right? I say the problem. It's not a problem, but it means consistent theology. Can God be tempted? No, he can't be tempted. And Jesus was tempted, but we'll just forget about that for a minute. So, so then if Jesus is God, we intuitively know that we need a mediator, right? So, so we have to have somebody who is a go-between between us who are messed up and God who is perfect, and we need like a perfect human in the middle. So the Catholic traditions, because of their theology that moves Jesus out of that spot and into the God spot, they had to come up with someone else. Has anyone ever heard of um, not the Immaculate Conception, the, um, what is it? Confession, but, but about Mary. Mary, Immaculate, no. Okay, Mary is called, let, let, just time out. Mary is called the Mediatrix. She's the Mediatrix, and they pray to Mary because Mary is now the mediator, and the reason that she could give birth to Jesus who's sinless is because Mary was sinless in their theological constructs, right? So you see how theology impacts how you view. So if your theology makes Jesus not the Son of God, but God the Son, then you have to create someone else to fill the gap that Jesus filled. And so then we put Mary here. So this verse would read, uh, for there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the woman Mary, the sinless Mary. And so she is referred to in Catholic theology as the mediatrix. It's the feminine version of mediator. So that's why theology matters, because it impacts other things. It's like dominoes. How many of you ever did all the dominoes? You stand them up, and then you knock one down, and then you just get mad because by the time you got the 35th one, you knocked over the second one, or the cat walked through, and then, right? So has nothing to do with this. All right, number five, the high priest. Now, because we're talking about you know, Catholic theology, let's, let's talk about priesthood, because priests aren't a bad thing. God established a priesthood. But what's interesting is that Jesus now, in Hebrews 4, says, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So, again, theology matters because according to Scripture, Jesus is your priest. You don't need another one. That Jesus is the one that you've got, and he's the one that you need. And what does a priest do? A priest makes intercession. And so Jesus makes intercession for us. All right. So those are some of the things that Jesus is. He's, he's a son of God, he's a Messiah, he's a savior, he's our mediator, our go-between with, with God, and then he's our high priest. But scripture is also clear about some things he's not. And again, let me go back to, we don't know everything that is true about Jesus, but we do know some things that are true about Jesus. And again, we have to just pull them from his own words. For example, Jesus is not omnipotent. Oh, I no, go back, go back. Maybe I got it out of order. Okay, Jesus is not omnipotent, which means he's not all-powerful. This is what he says in Matthew 28. You tracking with me there? 
You skip Ty Priest? Okay. All right, Matthew 28. So this is, this is why we would say, theologically, Jesus is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. In Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you have to be given something, you did not first have it, right? And we said last week that omnipotence, being all-powerful, is an essential characteristic to God's nature, that if God was not omnipotent, he would cease to be God. Jesus, by his own words and admissions, say, I don't have it all. It was given to me, right? So, Secondly, John 5, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do what? Nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. That there is a very clear understanding in the mind of Jesus that I'm able to do the things that I'm able to do because God empowers me to do it. That there is that nature. Did we just not have that verse, Eric? All right, let's go to John 5.30 then. John 5.30. And this was important for John to write down, another passage. By myself I can do nothing, Jesus says. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. That's an interesting concept, that Jesus is seeking to please God, right? All right, so secondly, Jesus is not only not omnipotent, he's not omniscient. Hey, we're there. Sorry, this, there's 93 slides, so you'll forgive me if some are out of order. My bad. My, my bad. All right, that he's not omniscient. And omniscient means to know everything, right? Science is knowledge. Omni means all. So Jesus says... Jesus says he's not all-knowing. He says in Mark 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he's talking about the end times, the world is going to change, but about that day or hour when the heaven and earth will pass away, about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And we know that throughout scriptures, God is equated with the Father, that only God knows that day, and Jesus doesn't know it. So clearly, God doesn't, or Jesus doesn't know everything. And we said last week, omniscience is also an essential characteristic of God, right? So this is his son. Acts 2.32. Oh, sorry. Number three, self-sufficiency, right? All right. This is an interesting one, too. Jesus is not self-sufficient. Now, what does that mean? Self-sufficiency is you don't have any need of anything else. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need you to give him worship for him to exist. He doesn't need to be given authority. He doesn't need to be given power. That, that, that's the whole crazy thing about creation. Like before any of this existed, it was just kind of God hanging out. It, he, he just has always been. In fact, in, in the scriptures, he calls himself the self-existing one. So that'll blow your brain up if you think about that too long. But in Luke 22, we have the picture of Jesus just prior to the crucifixion praying to God. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, besides the fact that you have two wills at work there, God's will and the will of Jesus, what's interesting is Jesus is effectively praying, I can't accomplish the very thing that I hope to accomplish, that in order for what I'm asking to happen to happen, God, you have to enact it. 
I am not able to enact it myself. You are the originator of the action for which I'm asking. Jesus was not self-sufficient enough to do it. He had to ask for God's intervention. And then in Acts 2, as the disciples are going out preaching about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they specifically said that God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it, that it was God acting on a dead Jesus to bring him to life. It wasn't Jesus doing it himself, but God doing it for him. And so we see that Jesus is not self-sufficient, but like you and like me, relies on the power of God. Now, the final thing about what Jesus is not, and there's a lot of things that he is that we don't know, a lot of things that he's not that we don't know, but there are some things that we do know from Scripture. And this is Jesus, you know, we'll see his words, Jesus is not equal with God as well. Now, this is interesting because there were Jewish leaders running around claiming that he was saying he was equal with God, but that's not what Jesus said he was saying. Notice this in John 14. Jesus says, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. And if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. That Jesus had an understanding that there is one big head honcho and it ain't me. God is in charge, and I'm his right-hand guy. And then later in John, and John is so good at this, and and this is, I think, there's some good insight here. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was that day in Jewish law that they weren't supposed to do work, um, the Jewish, so because he was doing these things, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said, hey, my father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what the Jewish leaders thought. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. Notice what he says. Jesus gave them this answer. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. In other words, hang on. You guys think I'm making myself equal with God because I say I'm his son? Uh Uh-uh. I can't do anything by myself. He comes back and makes the point that your accusation of me is untrue and unfounded. I can do nothing. Now, wow, there went the time. Um, Let's run through a couple other things, because all of those things are true about Jesus, but so what? What does that mean? Because when you trust in someone, you're not just trusting in, you know, like, who they are matters, because character matters, but what they teach matters just as much, right? I can trust in somebody, but if they teach Looney Tunes stuff, it doesn't really matter. Jesus taught a couple of, three things really defined his ministry. One, Jesus taught the kingdom of God, right? And and we talked about this, and and I won't, you know, camp here a long time, but in Luke 4, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. He's saying that the, the crux of my ministry is that I preach this kingdom. And then all of his parables, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. He also taught salvation, John three sixteen. We know that verse, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But did you know there's another verse after that? Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So Jesus says, Hey, through my ministry there's a kingdom coming. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? I'm the door to salvation. 
if you believe in me, you have eternal life. And so here's where it comes. He teaches resurrection. That's the end game. He says in John 5, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who've done good will rise to live, and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So Jesus comes on the scene, and he's talking about this kingdom of God, this plan for the earth that God has. I'm the way to get there, and you're going to get there when I show up, and you're going to be resurrected. That's what he taught in a nutshell. Now, there were a lot of things he taught along the way, right? Prodigal son, parable of the talents, and all of these things, forgive your neighbor, walk another mile, sermon on the mount, all of these things. And in the process, he made some promises to go along with those teachings. One, he promised blessings. In Matthew 6, he says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Like, if you make God a priority, he's going to take care of you in a lot of other ways. Secondly, he taught, uh, promised eternal life. This is interesting. He says, my sheep, because he's the good shepherd, listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. It's a promise. And they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So he promises blessings to people who follow him. He promises eternal life, and he promises forgiveness. We know this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if we forgive, and if we stay true to the faith, and if we continue to trust in him, there's a reward. This is a reward system. For the Son of Man, in Matthew 16, is coming is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. That's a lot of factual information about Jesus. But that factual information transforms and impacts how we live our lives. Because when I get on Facebook after an election, and I see vitriol and hate both ways, and I want to delete... Why? Because when I read through the words of Jesus, I realize that I'm to be a Christian first, American second, and then whatever political persuasion third. It it impacts because when my marriage gets difficult, that I begin to interact in that way with that other person who I might not always see eye to eye, and I really felt fuzzy about it one time, and right now it's not. It impacts me and how I interact with them or what I put up with or the amount of grace that I extend and and how I view the the difficulties. When, When my finances get difficult and I'm tempted to cut corners and, and maybe not tell the whole truth, this impacts what I do because if Jesus is true to who he is and he's coming back and I'm going to be held accountable, I'd better get my act together in some ways, right? But it's also true that when my act is not together and I fall apart and I didn't do right in the marriage and I didn't do right financially and I was spitting out political vomit, that Jesus is full of grace. And I don't cut myself off too far for God to continue to love me. And there is always a way to come back. That's why this matters. I want to finish with one passage that I think sums it all up. Because after the crucifixion and after Jesus you know, was taken to heaven and the, the disciples are got back on board and they're out to preach, a whole bunch of people gathered in Jerusalem. And this is what Peter stands up and says, and, and this is a, a shorter sermon than mine today. He says, listen to this. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man... 
Again, this is all summing up everything we've talked about today. Accredited by God to you by miracles. In other words, God gave some street cred to him by what he did. His wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. Back from the Garden of Eden, God had this plan in place and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, that's a great way to get the crowd on your side, right? Hey, Jesus is Savior of the world, and you killed him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he quotes from King David, and then down further in his sermon, verse 29, as a result, he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, right? He didn't go somewhere else, but he was a prophet. David was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. There's that messianic prophecy right there. Seeing what was to come, he, meaning David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. So even in the Old Testament, David knew and understood that the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would have to be resurrected. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. And then... Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And they were speaking in tongues and some other miraculous things. And then he goes back to David. He says, for David, right, who died and is buried and his tomb is here to this day, for David did not ascend to heaven. If anybody would make it, it would be David, right? And yet he said, and this is quoting David out of the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, so in David's prophecy, God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. So this is the bottom line, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What a closing statement. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Like, you're right, we killed him, and he's coming back, so what do we do now? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the promise is for you and your children And for all who are far off, he's talking about you, for whom all whom the Lord our God will call. And so with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And if there was ever a generation that we could call corrupt, it wouldn't just be then, it would be now. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what do you do with this? Let me summarize all of that in a couple quick statements. One, Jesus was a descendant of David. Two, Jesus was a promised Messiah. Three, Jesus was a man put to death. Four, Jesus was raised by God. Five, Jesus was exalted to God's right hand, and he's promised to reign on David's throne forever. So let me ask the question for you. 
So brothers, if that's all true, what should we do? Our response is to repent and be baptized. Next week, we're going to do baptisms. And if you're on the fence and you've thought about it, I encourage you, get with me this week, and we will add you to the bunch. Because that's the response that the Scriptures call us to. If there's any truth at all to who Jesus is, and He really is going to come back and rule on the throne of David, and God has given Him all authority in heaven, you betcha, the only response is to repent and be baptized. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the the promises that you've made to us. We thank you for offering your only son on our behalf to go through what he did not deserve so that we might receive what we do not deserve. Lord, for the person here who's been thinking about baptism and what should I do, I pray that this might be the encouragement to get them over that line. For the person who was baptized at one point and just their life's been a disaster, Lord, we know that you have promised us forgiveness through your Son and that at any point we can just turn around, we can come back, and you're standing with open arms. Help us to know what to do with what we've heard today and give us the courage to do it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.